What's up, y'all, and welcome to another edition of the Mad Nucleus Podcast. And I'm your host. You know who I be. And for those who don't know or haven't listened to this show before, my name is Justin Felton, and I'm the host of this podcast. And thank you all for listening once again. And make sure you all subscribe, like, subscribe, follow, favorite on Spotify and Anchor. All you need to do is sign up with your email, make up a password, and you are in. All right. Today's show is very special, and I do mean very special. Since we are in the month of October, the month of October is Halloween. That's the holiday that we celebrate. We go to costume parties, drink, have a good time party and stuff like that. But this podcast is dedicated to you know, horror icons, the the directors, the actors, everybody who performs in these movies and these franchises, ranging from movies to television. And they even wrote novels and comic books and serials about it. All right. I mean, who, who do I start with? Where should I start? Should I start with the directors and the actors who acted in these? But how am I going to start this podcast off with who, though? You know, should I talk about Psycho, the Psycho franchise, Norman Bates with Anthony Perkins? You know, Janet Lee, Jamie Lee Curtis's mother. You know, we should be starting with that. I mean, that's not probably the real horror franchise, but we can talk about the monster verse, you know, Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, Gilman, the mummy, you know. That Bella Lugosi, Boris Karloff, you know, those type of icons, those actors who turned into icons because they portrayed classic monsters. You know, it goes back to that. And they, they're recently trying to reboot that universe and try to make a whole new monster verse. Um, you know, I don't know how many times do we need to see Dracula, Frankenstein, and the mummy, the wolf man, the gill man, you know, how many zombie franchises are out there? I don't know where to start with this, so you have to bear with me. You know, zombie franchises like the Evil Dead, you know, Bruce Campbell, Ash, the uh, zombie franchises like, you know, Army of the Dead, no, Dawn of the Dead with George Romero, Army of the Dead is Zack Snyder, but he directed a remake of Army of the Dead. No, Dawn of the Dead. Damn, I'm, I got... Y'all got to excuse me, man. It's, it's so much to process here. You got to bear with me. Um, you know, wh- wh- where do we start? I, I need to know where we start. So I'm, I think I'm going to start with the directors, um, these creators of these franchises. And I want to talk about... Um, George A. Romero, he started uh, Night of the Living Dead in 1968 uh, that featured the first black hero of a franchise. Problem is that hero did not survive and should have survived because of his intellect. Dwayne Jones pretty much broke stereotypes with George A. Romero. He broke stereotypes of the token black person. This, This guy was so calm under pressure dealing with the walking dead, you know, he was so calm under pressure and knew what to do, knew what to expect. And 
the, the survivors in that house gravitated towards him. And you looked at it like, wow, these are the type of roles we can play. This is the type of role, the most under pressure role you can play. You're dealing with zombies who want to eat brains. And he's so calm. He's so cool. He's so collective. He's got himself together. He knows what to do in that situation. And, you know, it, it, Dwayne Jones's role gave us a ray of hope on top of him acting so great. Sadly, Dwayne Jones passed away in 1988 at the age of 50. Um, but that role was pivotal to the growth of black actors and actresses in Hollywood and proving that we could act parts like that. And um, they did a remake with Tony Todd in 1990. That was very good as well. The ending was slightly different, but I hated both endings because, you know, it involved tragedy of both of our heroes. And, you know, the next type of zombie franchise we're dealing with is like I mentioned earlier was um, the Evil Dead franchise with Bruce Campbell, Sam Raimi's brother Ted. Um, that was crazy. And, you know, the background on that film, well, that should be a documentary in itself. It is just crazy how they get some of these movies done. You know, you wonder when you read about them, how did they get this stuff done? What in the world, you know? And if you watch the movie, it, it was well put together, you know, did not have the budget that most bigger productions like an Alfred Hitchcock film had and stuff like that. And it became a huge success like that, like a snap of a finger. And then it spawned uh, two other sequels, a remake and a television series. The television series called Ash versus the Evil Dead, which I've never seen. I've seen the remake. The remake wasn't really bad. You know, I didn't spend no money to go watch it, but, the, you know, we gave it a look one night when we had a, 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 you know, a night of, you know, with friends watching movies, eating pizza and stuff like that. And it was not a bad remake, but I had to explain to people who'd never seen the original franchise the differences of them. And it was like, oh, okay. I was like, y'all got to really watch them. You'll spot the differences and stuff like that. And speaking of Alfred Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock had created some gems. This guy created stuff that's in the Library of Congress, like, of course, Psycho. He did Vertigo, right? I haven't seen Vertigo before, but I heard that was that was a groundbreaker. He did The Birds. He did uh, he did a whole lot of other stuff that wasn't suspense or horror, but he did The Birds and the and Psycho. And you know, with Psycho, Psycho has that impact that has that impact you know multiple personalities you know relationship between mother and son that type of thing that it's never been done on in film before not to anybody's knowledge and you know nobody dared to be so bold like alfred hitchcock did with psycho and it made stars out of anthony perkins and janet lee rest in peace to all of them um, the Psycho franchise spawned four, four of the sequels. No. Yes. Is it six of them or four of them? 
yeah, it spawned a bunch of other sequels. Um, the last ones were done on television and, you know, during, um, Anthony Perkins last days, um, that franchise had some crazy stuff going on in it, you know, but you know who was responsible, but it did have a great plot twist. And I know many of you watch the, the Norman Bates TV show would go, well, wait a minute, where did she come from? And where did that person come from? And sometimes you got to go back and watch the film franchise to get a little more clarity on some stuff. Um, there ain't much else I can say about that franchise except for Alfred Hitchcock was a genius. He was a genius for the stuff that he did back in the day. He was so far ahead of his time. Then you have uh, Wes Craven, who created several franchises, let alone one... You create one iconic movie and it spawns a franchise. Imagine doing it for another. He created A Nightmare on Elm Street, which has his own franchise, as you know. And Scream, that has his own franchise. And Scream 5 is coming out January of next year. They recently dropped a trailer last week and it looks good. And it has people wondering, who's the killer going to be? Who's the killer going to be? People are wondering if, you know, any of the main characters who survive is going to be the infamous Ghostface killer. And I'll get to that in a second, but let's talk about A Nightmare on Elm Street. This man created an icon that makes people value their sleep or lack thereof. He made you want to go to sleep. He made you not want to go to sleep. He made you want to only go to sleep and dream up good dreams. And, you know, you find out what creates bad dreams. And, you know, it made people scared to go to sleep. You know how psychological that is that, you know, when you're tired after a hard days of work or whatever else that you can't even go to sleep. He creates this dream demon that haunts you in your dreams. And what made A Nightmare on Elm Street so good was that Wes Craven wanted to scare the living daylights out of you. He didn't care about an origin story for Freddy. I don't think we cared at the time. We just know this dude was mean, evil, ugly, and nasty. And did some, sh some shit that made people scared. I mean... That's crazy. Wes Craven created two successful franchises. And like I said, the second one being Scream. And again, that was a groundbreaker because Scream made people go get call ID. <laughs> then they started creating phones with call ID a short time later. That's crazy. I mean, call ID went from virtually a rich kid's tool like the cell phone to access to everybody in the general public that is just crazy what goes on in the minds of these dudes man and the fact that you 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 choose a costume where anybody can you know kill somebody and you don't know who it is because they're so well disguised like anything else That that's all I have to say about that franchise for right now because I'm I'm 
having a uh, blank about everything I want to cover. But Screen 5 is dropping next year. And I'm sure plenty of people are going to check it out. It's got a positive reception of the first trailer. Especially when it was mentioned that the killer is related to the victims or survivors or something. So we need to keep an eagle eye on that. Next franchise, I'd like, not the franchise, but next director who created a franchise that, you know, a lot of people love is Don Coscarelli. He is the father of the Phantasm franchise, the tall man with the spears at the, the cemetery. And what's crazy about this is he can see this concept off of a series of bad dreams, weird bad dreams that we all have or a series of just weird dream, dreams in general um, that he was having. Just just. Stuff that you put together, you dream one thing and then dream another. Like you can have nightmare, a nightmare first and then dream something good. It's crazy. And he conceived that from that. He said so in interviews and stuff like that. And it was like, what in the world? And watching that, it was like, dude, this dude looks scary. He looks up to no good. He's tall. He's intimidating. You know, they had the right music, the right feel, and this spawned sequels. All the sequels I like to this franchise. Don Coscarelli is a genius in his own mind. He also directed The Beastmaster. Good movie. James Wan, he created the Saw franchise. He directed the first Saw and produced some of the others. But he jump-started it and created that franchise along with Lee Wynell. And you know how it is with Saul, Jigsaw Killer, you know. That's psychological. That's not necessarily horror. It's, 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 it's a psychological thriller. The fact that we are watching people go through torture devices just to live. What goes on in the mind of these guys? Another one is Clive Barker. He jump-started the Hellraiser franchise. Clive Barker is one of them people who, are, who is into these sexual fantasies and BDSM must have been his thing and he turned it into horror with Pinhead and the Cenobites. You watch the movie, you see the hooks and the chain hooks and you know the, 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 the racks and the torture devices and I'm like, man, this dude is really twisted and demented. And we thank him for giving us horror icons like Pinhead. All these, these. But there are a few more that I've not mentioned yet. You got Don Mancini, David Kirshner, the team of Tom Holland. John Lafayette creating Chucky. I, I went through Chucky in the earlier podcast. Check that out. But you know how it is with Chucky. They dealt with voodoo and dolls and stuff like that. They have a TV series, a current TV series. They the um they are on episode two, about to go into episode three. You need to check out both of them. This is a very good series so far. 
And yes, David Kirshner and Don Mancini are the showrunners, the guys who have been with the franchise since the very beginning. You need to check that out. Um, then there's Michael Myers and Halloween. I mean, what made Michael Myers tick? Interesting story is when Halloween came out in the original cut, there was no scene where Michael Myers meets his baby sister. What that was, was when Halloween 2 came out, um, NBC, I believe, forced them to film some extra footage to fill time. How about that? Instead of them editing out stuff, they wanted extra footage. They always have the TV version where you, where the, where you say, okay, use this footage for the TV. You know, we use this for the theater. You can use this for the TV. But they were forced to film extra scenes. One scene was Dr. Loomis and Nurse Marion having that conversation about Michael having a sister. Nurse Marion tells Dr. Loomis that uh, Michael Myers has a uh, baby sister. And then they show the scene of the baby sister, uh, the his parents visiting him in the mental hospital showing a baby sister in the arms of the mother. That was all for Halloween too. And then it's the continuation of Michael Myers stalking Laurie Strode or giving him a reason to do what he was doing or stalk Laurie Strode because it didn't make any sense for him to just be picking random teenagers to stalk and just them when there was other teenagers around. That made zero sense. Zero sense at all. Think about that, folks. He just picks three or four random girls to stalk when there were hundreds of others around. But he cho chooses Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, Nancy Loomis, and PJ Souls, their characters, to stalk. But they said, we can give them a purpose, a reason for stalking them, one in particular. Boom. Extra television footage for when they was debuting on NBC back in 1981 in time for the premiere of part two. And this spawned many sequels and they had the nerve to recon it. And I'm like, why are they reconning it for? One and two was perfect. You know, just continue off of that if they're going to recon. Most of the franchise just recon that. And in the last Halloween movie that they did, it didn't explain why they reconned it, but this one they explained it and it, and it was just kind of silly. The reason, the reason, they gave a new reason for Michael Myers to tick, which didn't really make too much sense. And I ain't going to spoil it for those who haven't seen it. But to me, it didn't make sense. To me, it was a bunch of BS. Next up, and that, and you got John Carpenter to thank for that franchise, who also spawned. Um, he also did a bunch of other great films as well. Next up is Jason Voorhees, Sean S. Cunningham, who directed the first film, and you know that spawned a bunch of sequels. He didn't do it any of the sequels but he produced he managed to come back and produce Jason Goes to Hell the final Friday but we know that wasn't the final Friday Jason's too popular of a guy to you know 
all these guys are too popular for you to just be ending the franchise like that. There's always going to be some BS reason to bring them back and then, you know, lack thereof explanation. But, you know, Jason is my personal favorite. And what made him tick was his undying love for his mother, mother and son relationship, taking cues from Psycho. And, you know, all these franchises have one thing in common. They keep coming back. They keep, you know, driving the crowd. They keep getting the crowd sucked in and stuff, no matter how bad they become. Because you love the original so much. And another one franchise that doesn't have a character in particular that's a fan favorite but you know because actually it does but it's I don't consider that a franchise that has one in particular icon is The Exorcist to many it's the best horror movie ever made you know Reagan and Pazazu you know Tubular Bells the theme Mike Oldfield You know, I'm going to be honest with you. Probably as a kid, that would have been scary with the lights off. Because I didn't see it as a kid for some reason because they never showed it on TV as much. But the more I watch it, the more I laugh. And you can see, and I'm going to point it out, you can see there was a particular scene in The Exorcist where... Ellen Burstyn's character is visiting the doctor and, you know, the doctor gives the results of what's wrong with Raven. And the doctor tells her what Raven says. And pardon my language here, but I'm going to say it for you so you won't get confused or you're wondering what it was. Um, the doctor tells Ellen Burstyn that uh, Reagan said, Keep your fingers out of my goddamn cunt. And she sits there, she she giggles and laughs, but she catches herself because, you know, they're filming. But the the, <laughs> the giggling and the, the gag, the giggle gag, because even she knew that was funny. The doctor had a straight face. He acted it well, but she just, she, you know, she went out of character and became herself and just laughed and gagged and giggled a bit, you know, but she had like tears in her eyes. But I was like, ah, Ellen. As brilliant as you are, Ellen, you're a great actress, but even you know that was funny. It's okay, it's okay, but uh, William Freakin kept the cameras rolling on that. So, and that, and that scene is probably on YouTube, like many of the, the, the other iconic scenes in these franchises are on YouTube, but I think that was, you know, I found it interesting, and they just kept the, the cameras rolling. That was the only piece of acting that, that kind of was off-key for the tone of the movie. And all in all, you're, you're talking these, these horror icons, these directors, these producers, these actors that bring these characters to life and keep these franchises going. Now, you know Freddy Krueger is Robert England. He is Freddy Krueger. Nobody else can take that crown away from him. They gave the reins to Jackie Earl Haley in the remake, and Jackie Earl Haley, as great of an actor as he is, he's no Freddy Krueger. His Freddy was okay, but nah. They made, I'd say he was more creepier 
as himself with, you know, the way they had him looking as a human being than he was as Freddy. The Freddy design didn't didn't make didn't didn't make anybody scared. You know Brad Dourif is Chucky, the voice of Chucky playing Charles Lee Ray, the human being, the human psycho serial killer. And I must say, this TV series is trying to make a hero out of Chucky, so to speak. You got to watch it to see what I'm talking about. And you, you may say, what? I don't want this guy being a hero. He's not a hero. Let's slow down a bit. He's not so much as a hero, but he has anti-heroic type tendencies, you know, and it's showing that even the worst of the worst has some kind of good nature in them. Problem is, in the case of Chucky, ain't enough of it coming out of him to really see that side. But you're seeing a side of Chucky where he has a moral code, I will say. A line he won't even cross. But of course, he has motives and means behind it. Of course, you got to keep it all in perspective. You know Angus Scrim as the tall man. Rest in peace. Oh yeah, and I didn't cover the Candyman franchise. Tony Todd, you know him as the Candyman. Candyman, you know, nobody's going to go into a bathroom. A dark bathroom with no windows. You know, no light, no nothing. And say Candyman five times. Same thing with Bloody Mary. But those are the two things that's scaring people from staring into a mirror, calling somebody's name five times. You know Tony Todd is Candyman. Nobody else can be Candyman. There are no more, there are nobody who can play him. Sure, in 20 years, somebody's gonna reboot the franchise and play Candyman, but you're always gonna have Tony Todd in your heart. Now, Michael Myers and Jason, that's different. Multiple actors have played the shape. Multiple actors have played Jason. But who is your favorite that played those characters? You have Nick Castle, who is the shape, and Tony Curran, who is also playing the shape in the first one. He was the guy that was unmasked in the first one. He also came back for the Halloween movie that came out three years ago. But you also had Dick Warlock who played the second one and he was a stuntman on the first one. I know he did, you know, he filled in and played several roles in the second one. Um, part three was BS. I mean, part four was, was it Don Shanks in the, uh, Don Shanks was in either part four or part five. I forgot the other one. Then there was George P. Wilbur. Then there was uh, there, there was so many actors that played Michael Myers. Then then Jason, you know, the first person who played Jason was the kid, Ari Lehman. Second one was Warrington Gillette and Steve Daskowitz. And they had a bit of a dispute. Those two were quarreling and bickering for years and Steve Dash had passed away a few years ago, rest in peace. 
over something, a prop or something like that. And they both was playing the first adult, Jason. Then there was Richard Brooker, who died of a heart attack um, some years back. Rest in peace. I remember uh, watching the commentary track on part three with him and the other cast members, Dana Kimmel, Paul Cracker, and uh, Larry Zerner. They, you know, they did a wonderful job on that commentary track for that. You know, it's in the DVD box set of, you know, all the Jason movies from part one to part eight. Uh, who else played? Ted White was an un uncredited Jason for part four. And I was, I remember rolling through the credits to try to find out who played Jason. And that one person's name popped up for who played Jason. And then I read, I went on Wikipedia and of course I read why. He wanted it to be uncredited, uncredited. And while he was uncredited was because he didn't want to be associated with a senseless slasher franchise. You know, he was used to doubling and playing in Westerns and old dramas and stuff like that. Old action movies from like the 50s and the 60s, doubling for Clint Eastwood and guys like that. But he didn't want to be a, you know, his name attached to a senseless slasher flick. But he probably has more fans, is what's crazy, of him being Jason than he ever would have had playing a cowboy, playing on gun smoke and all that. Crazy, ain't it? We all got to be famous for something or somebody. And he was he was an absolute brute and a monster. He was just a big dude under, you know, the makeup and the prosthetics and and you know, you know his physical frame was imposing. He also served as a hero on set. Um, the story was that, uh, director Joseph Zito. They were shooting the scene where um, Judy Aronson's character gets murdered in the raft. And uh, it was so cold out there that night. And, you know, the water was cold. She had caught hypothermia. And Joseph Zito was pushing her and, abuse, I guess, verbally abusing her and bullying her and then finishing the scenes and stuff. And, you know, she ran off the set crying and all that stuff. And Ted White stepped in and told him, look, you better treat her better. She's sick. She let her get herself together. He was basically playing the hero to her or he was going to, he threatened to quit and they didn't have the budget to find his replacement, you know, in the middle of production. So, you know, it, it also proves that he's a stand-up guy. You know, you, you need more like him. Who played Jason in part five? Jason in part five was tricky. Tom Morga played Dream Jason. The real guy who was playing Jason was... Not really Jason, as you know, uh, by the name of Richard Wing. You know, he was, you know, you saw the movie, you know, he was a fake Jason who used the Jason moniker to get revenge for his slain son who was murdered at a crazy camp. You, you know, many of you have seen it, you, you know, you horror things, you've seen it and stuff like that. And I think he did a good job as it. But I knew when I first saw that movie, Jason looked way too human in that movie. When you saw Jason's hands or something, they didn't look human in the previous films. When you saw Jason's neck and 
his body, his body didn't look that human. But this Jason looked so clean, so human. It looked like he just threw on the outfit and was heading to a Halloween party. He, he was way too human. But the kills were Jason-esque. So, yeah. Part six, I think this might be my favorite Jason played by C.J. Graham, and they need to give him another crack because this Jason didn't waste no time and didn't play no James, uh, games in part six. He was like a militant-type Jason. The way he was moving, how calculating he was and stuff like that, he probably was the best Jason. Part seven and eight was played by Kane Holder, and, and he was also Jason in... Jason Goes to Hell and Jason X. So he played Jason four times. Being doubled by Ken Kersinger, who played Jason in Freddy versus Jason. Derek Mears played Jason in the remake. But Kane Hodder was a good Jason. Um, they really made Jason look like a monster in part seven. I mean, under all that makeup and stuff, he didn't. You couldn't recognize anybody under that makeup. That should have won an award at the Oscars for the makeup because you couldn't recognize who Jason was under there. You couldn't recognize him as Kane Holder. Kane Holder started to look more like himself in part eight. In particular, when he gets in mass, you can tell by the, the facial structure and the ears and stuff like that. They did what they could with that. But whoever did the makeup for part seven was, you know, that was on point. And Jason Takes Manhattan, a lot of people were like down because half of the movie was filmed on a boat on en route to Manhattan. And, you know, it was like, well, you know, at least he didn't kill everybody on the boat and didn't do anything in Manhattan because he killed what, six, seven people in Manhattan <laughs> more. <laughs> but one of my favorite scenes was when he was walking through uh, Times Square <laughs> And he looks around like, okay, that's all this. I ain't never seen this before. And then he walks. Teenagers listening to the music and he kicks the radio. And the teenagers get mad and threaten him. And he turns around. He unveils his face to him. And they just start running. They was booking. And I was that, that's like everybody's probably top two or three favorite scene from that franchise. And also the scene, the end credit scene of uh, Jason Goes to Hell is hands down the best post credit scene I've ever seen. That had me like, what? Oh, snap, son. And you got to remember the rights of the Friday the 13th franchise was signed over to New Line Cinema. So it made sense. They could use that property anytime they like. But that scene is better than any post credit scene you've ever seen. I don't care what horror movie, superhero movie, what have you. That was the shocker. That still shocks to this day. And we got Freddy versus Jason because of it. I mean, you see the Jason mask pops out. And does brings the master hill. <laughs> that 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 is just crazy. 
I mean, we talking horror here, right? So let's let's talk about it. I got a few minutes. I got time. How about y'all? We could talk about horror movies that were adapted from novels like Stephen King's novels, for instance. What are your favorites from him? Pet Cemetery, Silver Bullet, The Dark Half, Sleepwalkers, Cujo, Christine. Which one? Pick one. Any of them. All of them are classics in their own right. Cujo was only a horror movie because he was bitten by a rabbit bat. That, that, I felt more sorry for cute Cujo because I got a special place in my heart for animals, man. Especially animals who are domesticated and are loyal to, you know, their masters, their mama, their daddy, you know, because you take care of them and stuff. And, you know, you don't want to ever see a dog get killed. And they didn't show Cujo getting killed. But you knew what happened. But you also had to feel bad for him because it wasn't his fault. He was chasing a rabbit through the field. Rabbit went down a hole. You know, Cujo was barking at it because he couldn't catch it. His bark awakens the bats. The bats are all frantic. They're, they're afraid. They're scared. One bites him on the nose. like, and, and, and it felt like I felt that bite, man. It's like, no. Like, no, don't do that to Cujo, man. Don't do that to him, man. Don't do that. Don't do that. But that's Stephen King for you. He going to do that to you. That's what he does. He plays with your emotions, man. You ain't a master of horror if you ain't playing with people's emotions. And that's why that movie got such high praise. You had movies like uh, Silver Bullet. The Werewolf. I love that movie, man. I'm going to be watching that very soon. Also, I, I, I kind of felt bad for the Reverend. Because you know the Reverend is the Werewolf. Sorry for giving that spoiler away. But it is, it is never explained how he became the Werewolf. And like they said, they don't know either if he knows. But I suspect he probably dabbled, got curious and experimented with some sort of uh, ritual or something. Probably chanted it out loud. And the powers that be gave him the power to be a night stalking werewolf at the full moon. Every time there's a full moon, I suspect that's what really happened. And he didn't know how to really break the curse. He probably didn't even know what it's like to be a werewolf or how do you deal with a werewolf and stuff like that. And I always wondered, since they say a silver bullet can kill a werewolf, I always wondered, can you shoot a werewolf in the shoulder or in the leg? And could the curse still be lifted? And that person can still go back to being human? I always wondered if that's ever the case. Especially if a person is good-natured. You got other werewolf movies like an American Werewolf of London. And he was just... The werewolves in that was just killed by regular bullets. No silver bullets involved. Regular bullets killed them. 
meaning that they were still more human than they were monsters. And then American Werewolf in Paris, you know, the girl was a werewolf and she gets shot by her lover and stuff like that. He doesn't know he cares for her. She's almost dying and we think she really dies till a, when the screen fades and it turns out she isn't dying. She didn't die. In fact, the curse has been lifted. She's free of it, free of everything. And they get married. <laughs> On, it was a dope-ass bungee jump scene off the Statue of Liberty. You know, one of the best shots I've seen, though. It's not often that you see something like that, but, you know, it's it's crazy that with lore, you all, if you want to kill every werewolf, you use a silver bullet, but there were movies where regular bullets was killing werewolves. Fred Decker stuck to the source, stuck to the lore. In the Monster Squad with that. You know, he had one character blow up the werewolf with dynamite and it didn't kill him. He regenerated his parts and became the werewolf, probably came back stronger. So he had to end them with the bullet, silver bullet, that is. Not a golden bullet, not a copper bullet, but a silver bullet. And then you have. What other Stephen King movies getting back to Stephen King? You got Pet Cemetery. You feel sorry for Cage Creed. Yeah. I think we all do. But that evil little bastard. <laughs> that evil little bastard, man. It was like, nah, this, this little baby got to go back to being dead. It's better for him to be dead than to be like this. And of course, they showed that the, the, they had the scene of the sick sister of his mom and stuff like that. That creeped a lot of people out and stuff like that. But that little that little toddler, nah, son, it's better for him to stay dead than that. But I get the father's grief. I get it. Yeah, man, it's it's just crazy. And then there's what, what other movies like movies like The Dark Half and uh, The Langoliers. I've never seen The Langoliers before. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen movies, all of Stephen King's movies, because they started to adapt them to television. And on television, there was a lot of holdback with censorship and stuff like that. I mean, we could we could talk for days about Stephen King novels. I might say that for another podcast, in fact. But no, nah, we 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 just gonna keep it strictly, um, just horror movies and the franchises and the things that we love so much and the lesser known movies that should get more credit but do not because they are overshadowed by um, these franchises. Lesser known movies like Tales from the Hood. Tales from the Hood got two sequels that nobody cared to see, but we all love Tales from the Hood. It dealt with four issues that has plagued the black community in particular. Directed and produced by black folks, of course. You know, police brutality, racism, child abuse, and gang violence. They could have threw in a fifth with, you know, you know, sex or something or drugs. 
but they, they chose only four subjects and all four stories are complex and poignant in that movie. Police brutality, you know, uh, community leader, uh, fighting police, uh, cor corrupt police who sell drugs in the community and they catch him one night. They beat him up, they kill him, you know, use drugs and drive his car with him in it into the river. A rookie, a young black rookie policeman quits the force because of it. And then let's say a year later, the spirit calls for him to bring them to him. That's what he did. And man, that's when the horror commences. Next one, child abuse. This, this tale was interesting because David Allen Greer played a villain and he was good as a villain. He was still funny, but he was good as a villain. He was a child abusing stepfather to a boy. And his dialogue was funny and his facial expression in one scene had you like, uh-oh, something's going down. Uh-oh. He doesn't have a happy look on his face when the teacher kept urging him to look into the matter. You've seen the movie. I've seen the movie. Many of you haven't. That's why I hate to talk about these things because I know I will potentially spoil it for somebody. But we talking about it. Let's discuss it a while. Next, next is dealing with racism. And they chose, I don't, I can't say they chose the perfect person, but because he looked the way of a racist and he's a, a great actor. I mean, if you've seen TV's LA Law, you'll know what I'm talking about in Corbin Burnson. They chose him to play a character called Duke Mecker. That sounds like a racist name running for public office in the South. And he stays at this this plantation, this 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 plantation in the south somewhere where uh, he tells the story to his uh, his his aide, his campaign aide, because he asked why are people upset that he's standing in the, the plantation house. And he told him that the owner, you know, went crazy after the World War. You know, you had to free the slaves and all that other stuff. And. He went on, he went crazy and slaughtered all of his slaves. And then uh, a woman from like Jamaica, a voodoo woman, you know, trans made dolls and, you know, transferred all the soul, the, 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 the souls into the dolls and hit them in the house. She died and, you know, she hit them in the house. And then there was a painting of the woman and all the, the little dolls, slave dolls and stuff. So, you know, the slave dolls are you know, basically giving you a warning to get out. We don't want you here. You know, we want reparations and all that other stuff. And, you know, then Duke Medgar's character's True Colors is coming out. And and plus his character was affiliated with the Klan. He was a former Klan member. So, you know, understand that. And you know where, it, you know how that goes. And, you know, that was a fun, that was a fun tale. That, that, that was fun. And that had you uh, laughing because, Corbin Burnson is such a great actor. Um, he shows some some of his comedy roots in the role. So, you know, that was great. 
Next one dealt with gang violence, of course, and the twist ending had everybody like, no, yo. Just deal with a, a gang member who is nearly for, you know, he's nearly slain. You know, he he smokes a gang member and then like three other gang members nearly gun him down. And instead of killing him, the police save him and gun down the guys who were going to gun him down. He's given a shot at redemption while locked up. And this rehab program, you know, is a rehab pro program of torture, psychological torture. And he goes through it and, you know, sadly, it doesn't seem to change him. And, you know, boom. But that twist ending, though, I will not give it away for those who did not see it. Because I'm not going to give away all the spoilers, but you need to see it if you are curious. Though I'm pretty sure most of y'all who have seen this and is, you know, in the horror uh, more than anybody have seen it. Probably love it, of course, and stuff like that. You know, don't give it away to those who haven't seen it. But I can remember watching it back in the day and it was like, oh, man. Oh, dog. You hope that it end well. You hope that they... They came out of there, but they did not. And it was pretty, pretty scary, man. The perfect trap, the perfect ending. You know, you just wished it never was the ending, but that's how I go with movies like that, man. Never expect the happy ending all the time. But you remember when I touched on earlier that we had a... Uh, a first black hero in horror talking about Dwayne Jones in Night of the Living Dead. But in the 80s, in the late 80s, we had two horror movies that featured uh, well, black people had survived in it. One, they said the first black man to survive a horror movie was... Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 with Kincaid, played by Sing King Segoas. Pretty uh, funny guy, funny dude, man. Funny dude, listening to his uh, interviews and listening to his stories about stuff. He's a really funny guy. I would love to meet, I would love to meet guy, a guy like that, meet King Segoas. He survives as Kincaid in Part 3, but here's the deal. He wasn't even the main hero in the movie. But he was the first black man to survive. But here's why the second movie I'm going to tell you, the black guy who survives is the main hero, uh, is Night of the Demons. Night of the Demons. Um, it, it was crazy. When I first watched it, I didn't know what to really expect, but it was late at night. Um... You know, you're up, you're watching movies and stuff like that. You don't, you're not tired, you're not sleepy, you're just up watching movies. And I didn't know what to expect, but I had noticed one thing. Okay, we got a black guy in this uh, movie. He being a black man, I'm curious. And I don't know if I was expecting him to die, but he didn't die after 15 minutes because nothing really went on. 20 minutes goes by, something goes on. 25, 30, 30 minutes, something goes on. Not dead. Then we get to about 45 minutes. It gets really interesting. A lot of stuff went on. People have died. 
but he did not die. I'm like, this is the longest a black person has survived without being killed. Okay. So, another 15 minutes and we're like at an hour. He's still alive. And not only is he still alive, he is looking for ways out. But it's like, okay, he might be the last person to die. Hour and 10 minutes goes by. Hour and 15, he's still not dead. The final girl, as we knew, was going to be the final girl. She had a uh, ex-boyfriend or a boyfriend, a guy who was digging her or who was her kind of like in between her boyfriend, friend type thing. He was still alive and it was like, yeah, yeah, he's going to be, he's going to walk off with her. They're going to be a couple, but he ends up dying. Everybody is dead except for two people, the black guy and the blonde, blue eyed white girl. Everybody's dead in this movie except them. The black guy, <laughs> you know, is smart and jumps over the, the, the wall and stuff like that. And also, they said we don't we did they didn't want him. The black guy was a religious guy that they did not want because that would be a poison to the demons and stuff. So they were they're they're willing to let him go, but they wanted the pure blonde-haired, blue-eyed white girl who would make their cipher complete. So of course the black guy jumps over the wall from that haunted house. And, you know, he's free. But she's begging for his help. Roger, Roger, help. The guy's name was Roger in the movie. Roger, 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 please help. And it looks like he ain't gonna help her. But, you know what? He has to be the main hero. This is the first time a black man has been the main hero and survive. Not just be the main hero and die, but main hero and survive the whole ordeal. So he jumps back on that wall, extends his arm, grabs her, pulls her up, as they were pulling her down, she was going to be mincemeat had they pulled her down completely. He pulls her up, gets her over the wall, boom. It's sunrise the next day after Halloween. They walk home, don't say a word. After an ordeal like that, you don't expect anybody to say a word. I know I wouldn't, but the, the ending was pretty funny the ending was like yo and it was you know you you just kind of smiled and go yo it was pretty funny but you know night of the demons will always be remembered by me as the black first black hero to survive a horror movie we've had a the, the main hero be black but he didn't survive like i said in Night of the Living Dead in 1968 and, of course, the remake in 1990. But in, in 1988, the first black hero to survive the horror movie. And 1987 was just the first black man to survive, but he wasn't the main hero, though. Now, yep, that's that's just, you know... And and you know other horror movies I'm gonna I'm going to cover and um, 
you know, we'll be back with another one. All right, welcome back, everybody, to the Mad Nucleus podcast. And we're continuing on talking about horror, the icons, the movies, the television shows, what have you. And uh, I just want to continue on saying that, you know, while we talked about certain movies and certain characters and, you know, all these stigmas of horror movies, I want to also touch base on uh, certain films uh, being censored on network television and cable television. You know, the movies that are shown on ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox, and also shown on cable like USA Network, Sci-Fi, TNT, and TBS. Um, a lot of these movies we're exposed through that, and not more so HBO or Cinemax, Showtime, and Stars. Uh, I can remember also that, you know, it was no fun watching horror movies on those networks. The and what I'm talking about is, you know, primetime and cable networks because of censorship. Once upon a time, censorship was key to television. And I can remember one. Um, well, let me go back to basically way back in the day. Of you know the late 80s, early 90s, where all these local um television stations, these syndicated stations and stuff, would show late night horror flicks until about two o'clock in the morning, two to to about two to four o'clock in the morning or something like that, and they were all competing with each other. And a lot of times, like I said, with um Halloween. You would get more footage on television, which is kind of weird and strange than you would in the theatrical version just to fill time for television. But yet they edit out stuff for television. And this ain't just with horror movies. This is with movies in general. It's kind of weird and strange. Uh, One in particular was uh, I watched Night of the Creeps the other day. The other night. And the theatrical version of the ending, the ending in the theatrical version was, you know, pretty much short and brief. But the ending I always remember watching since I the first time I watched was the alternate ending that is shown on television. Why? Because it's a little bit longer. It's about a minute and some change long. And it feels enough time, I guess, for television. And a lot of times, I just find it weird that some of this stuff is shown on television to fill time, but we couldn't see it in in the theaters on our Blu-rays and our DVDs and stuff unless it says uncut and if you can spot it. But another thing that kind of made me sick watching horror movies on like regular cable channels was they knew how to promote it. They promote it in show commercials like this stuff was going to be unedited uncensored and we knew that wasn't true but we were suckered in anyway for instance tnt's monster vision with joe bob briggs if you watched that show there was a method to his madness with him promoting the movie how he promoted movies and the things he said 
he would start off with, okay, with this movie, you're going to get six breasts, exploding this, burning that, and, and chopped off heads and fingers, one bleeding torso or something like that. And we would never see any of that because it was edited for television. It ain't TNT's Monster Vision for nothing. You know, with that, if he was telling us about that, it, it would mean you're not going to get to see it unless you rent it at the video store. Because if he was doing that for HBO or Showtime, he wouldn't even need to use that because he knew we would be seeing it. But because it's on TNT and they want viewers, he would use that to gain viewership. It would be a longer running show and it would benefit TNT. And you would see none of that stuff he was talking about. Most of that stuff was edited or blocked out or substituted. It was just crazy. And they suckered people in and it worked. I can't be mad at him or them for doing it, but it worked. It worked. This is a method you could use if you was ever in broadcasting, if you was ever a host of a show. Whatever works, works, and you stuck with it. And he would do it every single night it came on. Is that brilliance? False advertisement? I say it's both. I look at it as both. Like, we deep down know in back of our minds we're not going to see that stuff he's talking about. Ooh, really? Ooh. I'm tuned in tonight now. Then that comes as like, okay, this must have been the one of the breast scenes. Uh, they're just showing from her shoulders up. We're going to see that bleeding torso. Now nah, we're seeing it from back angle. We're not going to see the chopped off head. We're going to see the blade. And then they cut to the person who's doing it. And the person who gets their ch head chopped off is already laying on the ground. No chopped off head that we get to see. And it makes you go to the video store, Blockbuster or whoever else, Hollywood Video, and go and rent the movie just to see what they edited out, how they did it, and it was sheer brilliance. It was annoying and torturing watching it, but it worked. The viewers got suckered in. This is a taste of how it was back then. Now they now on cable network, they don't censor out uh they don't censor out too much. If any at all. It's like role reversal. They even let F-bombs and S-bombs slide. On Sci-Fi last week, they showed Colt the Chucky and all the cussing was, was there. All the killings were there. It came on USA Network, same thing. Only they, they on USA Network, they still were substituting the language, all the bad language. But I can just remember a time when they showed Terminator and blocked off sex scenes. They, like, they blocked off the sex scene in Terminator. The bad language they were using. I wonder if they still do that now. But in horror, you know they had to do it back then. Too much blood, guts, and everything. Bad language, sex, drugs, you name it. They don't do it now, but back then it was... It was a love-hate relationship with censorship. It wasn't very liked, but, you know, we couldn't watch it anywhere else but that. 
we didn't have the money to rent videos all the time and do it. Times we did, we, we took full advantage of it. But man, you know, and I also wonder what goes through the minds of these guys, like I said, like, we're in the world. Yeah, of course, we thank them, but it's like, dude, really? You could have turned that into a comedy or a drama or a porno. Clive Barker could have turned Hellraiser into a porno flick. But he chose to go the horror route with it. His fetish with BDSM and torture devices and stuff like that. <laughs> Same with James Wan with Saul. But going back, and, you know, they edited out so much of that stuff in, in Hellraiser. I remember watching the TV version of Hellraiser one time and it was like, ugh. I can remember way back in the day, even though it was commercials, because I had a babysitter who taped it. They show everything on TV. Um, even though the, the, the channel they showed it on had commercials and stuff like cable TV does, but it, this was more so a local channel, I think. And they taped it. And they I remember them showing you know, the sex scenes and the, the blood and the guts and stuff in Hellraiser. But one movie in particular, I'm going to walk you through the editing, the madness of editing is I was watching Deadly Friend. I had covered this on a previous podcast, as you know, if any of you listen to it. I was watching Deadly Friend on TNT one time, taped it and everything. But I knew they were going to block off everything. Many of you know about that famous basketball scene. Give me a second here. I'm going to try to explain it to you. Okay. Just before it happens. Uh, Ann Ramsey's character has the basketball in her hand. She picks it up. And she says on the television version. What are you doing as a repeat of what she said earlier in the movie? But if you watch the mouth, she says something different. You know what she says? Uh, she says, damn shits. <laughs> and Christy Swanson comes out of nowhere with the jump scare and throws her against the wall. She picks up the basketball. Boom. Exploding basketball head. Uncensored version. Now, in the TV version, they show her throwing the basketball, but about four inches before she gets, uh, before the ball hits her head, they completely cut cut to Christy Swanson's face, watching her uh, her her headless body walk across the couch and fall to the ground dead. And then they they showed the body uh, land on the ground in, in a pixelated image because Christy Swanson is uh, mind is controlled by the robot put in her brain and stuff like that on TNT. And I said, man, that was the one scene in the movie they could have kept in, but of course, it was too much. It was too gory, too graphic. But that's what made that movie famous was that basketball scene. Along with the uh the charm and the wit of it. And you know, you 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 walked away bummed, let down, led astray, 
and you're forced to say, please show this movie on, on, on premium network television one time if, while I still got it so I can see the real version. Or you hope that a friend has a version on tape, the real version on tape, or you got to go and rent it at the video store. Nowadays, you ain't got to do that. You ain't got to wait for TBS and, 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 and TNT to put it on TV. You can go watch it online, pirate it, stream it, because we are in the streaming era. But kids today should be grateful that horror movies are not censored on cable and network television now. Because they'd have had a fit back then. And trust me, you would have had every right to uh, have a fit. But you got to understand FAA rules. Hold up. Is it F no FCC rules? Excuse me. Forgive me for that. And got to understand the MPAA rules and stuff like that. You know, why films are trickled down and they need versions for TV. And because I have a Blu-ray of Halloween 2 from the Screen Factory that can, that features both the uncut version and the version they showed on TV or the version they've been showing on TV for all those years. You can watch them and see the difference. I don't even watch the TV version. Even if that contained extra footage, I'm not watching that because nobody wants to see edited kills. Or when you have the nudity, nobody wants to see, you know, half of the face being you know, halved off and, and cut off and, you know, watching their eyes and their forehead. Nobody wants to watch that. This is a horror movie, rated R, rated X, or NC-17. That means you go all out for it, but you're dealing with TV where kids are watching. They, they thinking about the kids. You got to understand that, but now, they don't seem to care about censorship too much compared to 20, 25 years ago. And, you know, then there's horror movies who didn't need to use blood, gore, or graphic material to scare you. There were, though it's very rare and very little, but they didn't need it. Who am I talking about now? What am I talking about? Hmm. None of the franchise are covered. I'm trying to figure it out, folks. But there are some out there. I was going to say Saw because that's psychological torture and a psychological thriller. But there's plenty of blood in those movies. And I'm just sitting here thinking and contemplating. Like, like what is it that they are? Like, what is it that we're, that we're doing? I mean, this is October. This is the one month they should just say, 
F it. We should go uncensored. And they would be grateful. I think AMC uh, does a pretty decent job, but uh, I've seen over the years, they censoring stuff out too. They, they, they censor out more so the bad language than they do the killing. They don't, they don't, they don't edit out any of the killing it don't seem. But you got to give them credit as well. And have I covered everything? I haven't covered everything, but I think I've covered enough because I'm pressed for time. And thank you all for listening to the Mad Nucleus podcast. And I will see you all soon. And make sure you sign up to both Anchor and Spotify and click those favorite and follow buttons. They are very important. And if you want to subscribe, you can do that. And, you know, on other platforms, if you can get it on other platforms, which I am available on, you know, give it a listen through there as well. And I'll see y'all very soon. Peace. I'm out.